This is Leah Everett-Burks with the Center for Anti-Counterfeiting and Product Protection at Michigan State University. And this is Brand Protection Stories, stories about the practice of brand protection by those who live it. In Brand Protection Stories, we talk to those in the brand protection community about particular cases in their careers. Through some stranger than fiction, real life scenarios, we learn about the practice of brand protection and the challenges faced by brand owners worldwide. This episode of Brand Protection Stories is brought to you by Digimark. And, and I think many people in the, in the business that are doing counterfeit enforcement today still have to answer the same question. Well, how big is our problem? You know, why should we be concerned? Uh, what's it gonna hurt? And so that was a kind of an objective. One of the objectives was to try to get a better idea of how much auto part, how many auto parts or what was the value of the auto parts that were in the marketplace that were uh, causing economic and other damages to the consumer. Rod Kinghorn graduated from Michigan State University School of Criminal Justice in 1974 with a Bachelor's of Science degree. After a long career in the auto industry, he retired in 2012 as the General Director of Global Security at General Motors. During his career with GM, Rod was responsible for a wide variety of security-related activities, including fire protection and prevention, plant safety, workers' compensation, employee business travel, and company vehicle operations. But a majority of his assignments since 1984 were in the field of investigations, where he used an integrated business process to direct investigations that included internal and external frauds, thefts, major policy violations, allegations of criminal activity, loss of proprietary information, forensic analysis of information systems, counterfeit automotive parts, healthcare fraud, workplace violence threats, and undercover drug operations, all in support of GM's global operations. Rod received many honors and accolades as a Spartan. In 2004, he was honored as a recipient of one of the first alumni service awards presented by the MSU School of Criminal Justice. Additionally, he was an inaugural member of the ACAP Industry Advisory Board. Following his retirement from GM, Rod worked with ACAP in developing the professional certificate courses in brand protection, among other key programs. Retiring from this second career in 2018, but not before being inducted into the MSU School of Criminal Justice Wall of Fame. Welcome, Rod. I'm looking forward to talking with you today. Well, thank you very much, Leah. I appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with you. So to begin, it goes almost without saying that the state of Michigan is synonymous with the auto industry. Though the industry has changed quite a bit, new companies have emerged, models now offer electric, hybrid, self-driving, 
the auto industry is ever evolving. But Rod, for those of us who are not Michiganders or didn't grow up in the proximity to the Motor City, I could probably guess, but if you can explain a term that we'll be using today, and that term is partsman, what role in the auto industry and supply and value chain does a partsman play? Well, that was the name of, a, of an investigation that it was the name the FBI gave the investigation uh, that we uh, cooperated with. And I said, when I say we, I mean the auto industry in Michigan. So it included at that time, GM, Ford and Chrysler cooperated on uh, this investigation. And the, you know, the FBI uses code names a lot for these investigations. And then this one, they called it Operation Partsman. All right. Yeah, there's always an operation something with the FBI. So operations uh, partsmen involved what were known as the big three at the time, the big three auto manufacturers. Uh, that's correct. All yes, right. The, it was something that, uh, you know, generally speaking, the FBI doesn't do investigations for one company. So in this particular case, they were doing an investigation for the auto industry and thus the cooperation between the three companies. And the partsman plays into the fact that what was being counterfeited, counterfeited were what they call aftermarket products, replacement parts, things that are sold after a vehicle goes off the lot. Is that correct? That's correct. So it's... It's a customer uh, driven kind of market. It's not the auto companies provide part of the product. If you wanna go, if you wanna use their replacement parts, but you're not obligated to, to do that. There uh, are several different legitimate chains or marketing uh, cycles or paths that are legitimate uh, for providing that aftermarket parts. Now, there are, in, just in the auto industry alone, in, our, in addition to providing parts to the, the dealership, they also have other supply chain partners or distributors and other marketing paths for getting aftermarket parts to the customer. So one would be mass merchandisers, excuse me. A mass merchandiser is the big retailers that you see, the big chain retailers where you go through and you say, oh, there's some GM or Chrysler Ford products. I wonder where they came from. Well, most of the time they came from the OEM or the original equipment manufacturer. Uh, and so in addition to that, they have uh, what they call warehouse, or they did at the time of this investigation, they had warehouse distributors, wholesale distributors. So these are these are groups that are not, they're independent business people and they're running and they've been given a license to distribute genuine OEM product and they get special pricing to do that. It's a separate sale uh, marketing strategy, if you will. They had, that time had separate packaging, separate pricing. And one of the things that they don't 
that that group didn't get was sheet metal, glass, those kind of items from uh, the OEM companies. The raw materials and the well, lab. no, they, it is mostly related to the the type of product. So they're selling product that's that's fast moving, uh, frequently replaced things I like see. spark plugs, right. uh, control modules, wiring harnesses, transmission kits, uh, filters, and so they would get bulk volume pricing discounts from the OEM to to distribute that product. The discipline of brand protection is derived out of trademark law, since counterfeiting is a violation of trademark rights. It's important to remember that these are laws set up regionally throughout the world to protect the consumer. Yes, trademarks are assets of companies, but they tell the consumer the source of the goods and provide the assurance of origin. But brand protection isn't only the responsibility of the legal profession. It's multidisciplinary by nature and necessity. People find themselves in this field from such diverse career paths as security, supply chain, law enforcement, marketing, IT, finance, and yes, legal, as well as many more. So, so to, to set the stage for Operation Partsman, this took place in the mid-1980s into the 1990s, um, and it was a different type of market for automobiles. You know, we all know that cars are complicated pieces of machinery. If we think about it today, you know, given all the electrical systems, the smart components, the guidance systems, self-monitoring capabilities, those didn't exist. So in the 80s, early 90s, uh, a lot of people would work on their own vehicles. They do their repairs. It's not as easy today. You, you can't just lift the hood and, and replace many components or, or jack up your car in your driveway and do repairs should they break down. But in the 1980s, people were working on their cars. And as you said, with these parts, they were replacing oil filters, belts, AC components, brake pads, spark plugs. And to support that, there was that wholesale distributor that you just talked about, the retail locations, the neighborhood, neighborhood auto repair shops. It was a big aftermarket business. In that climate, did this then uh, attract counterfeiters seeing an opportunity there for auto parts? Well, I don't, I'm not positive that I could, I could tell you that the fact that people were working on their vehicles uh, was a driver for them to use counterfeit product. The distributors, some of the distributors or the folks that were selling the replacement parts. But the, mar uh, the market was there, right? Well, there, there was a market there, but the, during that period of time, the electronic control modules were also coming into being and they ended up, and that was, you know, the first, well, probably began a little bit before that, but that was, 
the introduction of the computer electronic systems that you're seeing more and more of in cars today and why it's more difficult to work on your own vehicle. Mm -hmm. So if you're working on a vehicle in the mid-1980s, the car may actually have been built in the early 1980s because if you still had warranty, it made more sense for you to go to the dealership to get it replaced mm-hmm. because it would be covered free, recover, you know, covered free of charge in most cases or with a small copay. Mm-hmm. Where <clears throat> once it was out of warranty, then you would, then you may look to repair it yourself or if you, if you like to be a do-it-yourselfer and do your own oil changes and all those kinds of things, you could do that. And, but- and if, if a consumer was doing their own repairs or, or taking it to a neighborhood shop, um, if a mechanic or, again, they themselves are doing the replacement, are replacing spark plugs or uh, transmission fluid, there's little uh, or there's low detection capability for them to be able to determine whether or not a product is genuine. Would you? That's, would you... that's accurate. Uh, they have no chance, basically. So Even... that, right. So that also opens up a, a window for the counterfeiters um, to not be detected. It does, but to get it into that market, it, you know that you don't have the online purchasing you have today. So you could buy a, you know, a counterfeit online today that wasn't that process wasn't available in that period of time so you're going to go to the local auto supplier the chain and it's it's the it's the retail it's the retail outlet that had or this or the wholesale outlet that has the incentive for introducing the counterfeit into the system the 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 consumer really they think they're getting genuine most of the time so it's it's all about profit to those folks that are selling to the do-it-yourselfer, or in many cases, they're selling it to repair shops. So somebody who's working on your car that's not a dealership might be getting it from one of the wholesalers. Or in those days, uh, the, it was very common if you were in the auto parts business, meaning you were repairing or you were buying, selling, whatever it was, it was very common for people who had product to put out faxes every morning to these customers or these businesses and say, here's what we have available today. If, and here's the pricing. So those auto shops and some of the re, uh, wholesale distributors would purchase that product unseen generally but it was because it was price driven and then they did with it another they did a number of things with it depending on what it was and they might resell it they might uh send it to a repair shop they might sell it to somebody who comes in the door you know and just to say i'm looking for such and such okay we have that is the 75th anniversary of the Lanham Act. As those in the community know, the Lanham Act is a federal trademark statute enacted in 1946, which provides the national system of trademark registration and protects the owner of a federally registered trademark against those that use similar marks if any confusion might result. 
It is our brand protection saber in the United States. And with this saber, we salute this significant milestone. So, so to put another time frame reference in this story, uh, in 1984, Congress passed the Trademark Counterfeiting Act. This act amended the Lanham Act to add criminal penalties to trademark infringement resulting in counterfeiting. Uh, prior to that time, the FBI did not have jurisdiction to enforce trademarks. There was really no criminal teeth to investigations or prosecution. Um, and then when this law passed, the FBI was the primary agency that did enforcements. Later on, uh, Secret Service joined in, Customs, but uh, not state or local authorities until later on. And many times, and I think brands still face this, um, law enforcement may consider counterfeiting a business issue. But with your case, with Operation Partsman, that was shortly after the passage of the Trademark Counterfeiting Act. Um, it was one of the first cases in which FBI stepped in and they stepped in in a very aggressive way. They established some pretty elaborate sting operations. Can you walk us through what that looked like? Sure, and you're, you're absolutely right. So prior to 1984, uh, we, I started doing counterfeit cases in 1982. So what we had available to us at that time were all civil actions. And so we would go out and make purchases from places that we suspected were selling counterfeit. And if we got enough evidence to get a federal judge to issue a ex parte seizure order, then we would come back to those businesses and basically raid the business. Uh, with the US Marshals would serve the paperwork. We'd go in with our attorneys. We'd take whatever the order allowed us to take. And then there would be civil action after that. So it was pretty much, everything was done pretty much by the brand owner uh, in that particular period of time. However, I will say that I know that the person that I was working for at the time was having conversations with federal law enforcement about, you know, what do you think we can do with this and ended up testifying before Congress before they passed the Trademark Act of 1984, along with other representatives from business. But the emphasis on his testimony related to the safety and the quality of the products that we were seeing in the counterfeit uh, market. And so those once that act was passed, there were additional conversations and we ended up um, creating a business. And the business kind of mirrored one of the wholesaler distributors because the wholesaler distributors kind of touched other a lot of points in the auto industry. And so even a dealership from time to time, if they needed product, would buy it from the wholesale distributor. I see. <clears throat> Excuse me. So in addition, they're buying these wholesale distributors. Some of them, they're very, there's a lot of very legitimate people doing that work. And they would uh, buy this product that's available on the open market, resell it. I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing that. Uh, even if they bought genuine 
they could buy genuine, legitimately buy genuine and resell the genuine, just, just as part of their business model. So, so with the FBI, you decided, or the big three decided that a way to infiltrate this criminal activity was to establish your own auto business, auto parts oh, business. That's correct. And, you know, a couple of the objectives were, and, and, I, and I think many people in the, in the business that are doing counterfeit enforcement today still ha have to answer the same question. Well, how big is our problem? You know, why should we be concerned? Uh, what's it going to hurt? And so that was a kind of an objective. One of the objectives was to try to get a better idea of how much auto part, how many auto parts or what was the value of the auto parts that were in the marketplace that were um, causing economic and other damages to the consumer. Taking, and so that was part of it. And what, so what was the value? And so in order to get some kind of an idea, it was felt like, let's put this business together and see if we can make contacts with all these different players that are in the market. So you set up the business, you make it look legitimate. So you have parts in there, you have racks, you, you have fork trucks, so you can load and you know, receive and ship and receive. You have to create a financial profile for the business. So if they were gonna go out and try to do business with another business, a B2B kind of thing, then that is a typical situation would be, you would validate the ability of them to do business. Well, there had to be that in the records, in the public records, so they could look and see, well, here's, here's how much business they're doing. Maybe we, we should try it. You know, the other thing you had to do because some of the contacts were personal, they would come visit the business more than once, you had to make it look like like product is going in and out. Right, to look legitimate. Yeah, and then yeah. you had to educate the agents on the business. And even, and so that was an ongoing process because you couldn't tell them everything they needed to know until they ran into the issue. And then they'd say, what does this mean? Right. How do we get to this? Right, you know, every, every industry has its, its lingo and its language. So you had right. to really train them to speak uh, automotive talk. Right, and we, had, and we had to make ourselves available on an ongoing basis to support their activity. So every time that they would make a contact, they're checking, what do you think? What is, is this gonna, is this possible? This is what they're telling us. Do you think that, you know, we should tr make a purchase mm -hmm. uh, or should we meet them somewhere? How, do, you know, so they're networking. Because the more networking they did, the more faxes they got every morning saying mm -hmm. what was available on the market. Mm -hmm. So they would go to uh, industry conventions, industry association conventions. And one of the things that was very key was them getting introduced to other people in the business. And so, so they could build their profile within the industry. And in order to do that, one of the legitimate WDs uh, acted as their kind of point man to say, 
Hey guys, here's the group in Detroit that's buying parts. They're a new business. You ought to see what they can do. So, uh, they, so they provided the introductions again right, to, to lend legitimacy. Yeah, to, to the give operation. them credibility, give them credibility and, and establish that trust mm -hmm. that you need to start doing the business. So how long was that sting operation in operation? <laughs> well, I say it was from 1987 to 1992, uh, but that includes, you know, beginning to end of prosecutions. And so some people would say that maybe this, the sting operation operated, uh, com was completed when you, they did the raids, which was in 1990 over a three-day period. Um, but we had some other things to clean up after that. Mm -hmm. And so it was still kind of functioning. And, and this was not just one state, correct? No, it was across many states. Uh, many be as many as 15 or so. 15 states. Right. So you're coordinating with numerous FBI authorities, but if you're crossing the state lines, you're also partnering with the assistant U.S. attorneys for those states. Yeah, and that most of that was done in the in the FBI and U.S. Attorney area. So they coordinated with all the offices, and then when they, when they told us, "Here's what we want to do. Here's our plan," then we matched up with them personnel-wise across the country because they needed representatives from the big three to go in with them so they could identify uh, counterfeit, right. identify the brand violation. So when they did the, those raids, you had to be available to authenticate the goods, say these are legitimate or they're counterfeit products. Right. Had to be able to do that and then make arrangements to haul material out. Sometimes it was truckloads. Sometimes it was shoeboxes. And store the material in a secure location until the U.S. attorneys released it based on the judge's order. Quite, quite the coordination effort across industry and with law enforcement authorities. Counterfeiting can be lucrative, but in many jurisdictions, prosecution results only in low penalties. Therefore, it attracts a wide spectrum of criminals, from out-of-garage sellers to sophisticated networks funding terrorism. And what is counterfeited? Just about everything. Uh, something that you were talking about, of course, in talking about automobiles, it's not hard to convey the notion that counterfeit components, replacement parts, can have some safety issues with them. We know in brand protection and in the study of counterfeiting that Many times what a counterfeiter is doing, first of all, they're using the brand's trademark, which makes it a violation of trademark rights and brings it into the, the Lanham Act. But they're also trying to physically mimic the look of the product. So when you're looking at automobile parts, say filters or the encasements of filters, what types of materials were you seeing counterfeiters use to look like 
automobile parts? Well, in the early days of doing the investigations, uh, because as you as you discover what they're doing, then they have to improve so they get better after after you've found it the first two or three times. He testified for it always educates them. And so some of the first oil filters we saw were actually uh, empty asparagus cans filled with rags that were painted to look like a genuine product and then put in a box to make it look like it was a genuine product. So vegetable cans. Yes. Wow. So there, um, it wasn't much of a filter, to be honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> so, so also they were trying to mimic, you know, fluids that go into your car, transmission fluid, antifreeze, um, all of those are complex chemical formulas to make them do what they are intended to do. Did you come across any of those types of items that had been counterfeited? Yes, a couple examples on the uh, counterfeit antifreeze when we did the test on that, uh, it ate through aluminum in 24 hours. So that would be like your radiator, eat through your radiator. Um, we had uh, transmission fluids that would solidify at zero degrees Fahrenheit. So they're in Denver today, it might've gone solid and stopped the car. Absolutely. Uh, or the vehicle that it was in. So, and I, I've also heard of things such as uh, brake pads being cardboard, compressed cardboard. Again, right. it, lo it looks like it may be a brake pad, but in fact, it's just a flimsy piece of material. Uh, that's true. And okay, again, those, they got better counterfeiting them after we took the early, really bad ones off the market, but still there was quality issues with brake pads. Mm -hmm. uh, for quite some time. It, so, so, I, so brands hear about their products being counterfeited in a, in a variety of ways. How did some of these parts come to your attention? Well, <clears throat> usually it was, it could be, there's a number of ways. So if you, we started having uh, failures on a particular problem in a particular area of the country. Uh, it could be electronic control modules, or it could be a number of different things. Uh, or it was picked up on them, and you get a lot of complaints from one or two dealers. That might be something you'd want to take a look at in that area. And you want to get the part itself and take a look and see what's, what you can trace back on that. Because you don't have a package anymore. You only have the part. Right. The package right. is gone. Um, I, sometimes it's just somebody says, I don't see how they're selling the product that cheaply. That's a competitor that says, I don't understand. So let me give you an example. Uh, Florida sells a lot of air conditioning compressors. And down in Fort Lauderdale area, many years ago, we identified a person that was selling counterfeit uh, air conditioning compressors. And so when we visited him to tell him of his errors, he says, I don't understand what the big deal is. He says, what's the difference? A Chevrolet is a Chevrolet is a Chevrolet. I said, okay, well, if that doesn't make any difference, why do you put our label on it? 
Well, because it sells better. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the that's the deal. Mm-hmm. And what he was doing was he was taking defective used air conditioning compressors, cleaning them up, repainting them, and putting a new label on it. And it didn't work. Mm-hmm. Just putting a brand label on it that had some appeal and people trusted. So they were purchasing them based on that trademark. Right. Yeah. And that's so, why you could sell. So I also know that for many brands, they don't know that uh, their product is being necessarily counterfeited until sometimes late stages where they're being sued in a lawsuit. And then they examine the products and, re- and it's revealed that they did not manufacture this product. Did that happen to you in the auto industry? Yes, that happened with another one of the fluids, uh, transmission fluids that were uh, counterfeited in California and sold on the East Coast uh, to a school district and their school buses uh, all stopped in the wintertime when the transmission fluid seized at zero degrees Fahrenheit. And so General Motors was named in the lawsuit because of the name on the cans that they bought the transmission fluid. And so when we did the analysis on the transmission fluid, that's when we determined it wasn't ours. And that's when we did started the investigation of, okay, where did you buy this? Because it's not ours. Yeah. And this, this was school buses. So this could have stranded children and probably did sub-zero temperature yeah probably did so again safety concerns when it comes to anything related to an automobile so uh with operation partsman this 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 case has been has been talked about because it really was one of the the first in which fbi went to such great extents to ferret out the counterfeits and the counterfeiters involving, again, the big three auto companies, which which don't typically um, work with each other, uh, their competitors. So to find them cooperating was probably a first in the industry. But as you said, when you were using that example of the AC uh, counterfeiter, they were finding their trademarks slapped on repair parts as much as GM was. Correct. But even though that this case was back in the 80s and early 90s, um, I know, Rod, you're being a little modest with this, but this case still goes down as one of the largest non-drug seizures in FBI history. Yeah, at the time it was, they told us it was the largest at the time, non-drug seizure, uh, over $50 million worth of product. Right. in those three days. Yeah. So again, you know, lay, laying the groundwork, this really was one of the first, in quotes, brand protection enforce, enforcement actions. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you and walk through this story is because of your background. I mean, you were with in various security functions at GM. The listeners have heard your impressive bio, um, but as a security issue, counter, counterfeiting is a security issue. It's a safety issue 
that requires someone with your skills to be able to coordinate with federal agents and to be able to cooperate with them to answer their questions, to be on call, to teach them how to talk auto. Um, so it was really one of the first cases that led the way into the discipline of brand protection. It, it did, but let me, let me tell you that the positions I held, especially in the investigation area, I learned more about the business doing that than many people do if they stay in the same position in the same department for years and years and years because every time that I went to a new facility or a new business part of General Motors to do some kind of an investigation the first thing I had to find out was how do you run the business here and what is normal because I'm going to look for what isn't normal and so you really have to do things that the, the primary objective of our organization from security was to protect the business. And you can only do that if you understand the business. Right, you can't come from it from uh, you know, a very narrow angle. You have to understand the intricacies of your business. Absolutely, to be the most effective. Right, so one, one last question for you. Rod, um, in thinking about Operation Partsman, if you could select one word that captures that case, what would it be? Uh, enlightenment. Personal enlightenment, industry enlightenment, consumer? Well, enlightenment on how organized the counterfeiters were, how many opportunities the business was giving unknowingly in most cases, the business was giving the counterfeiters uh, by allowing product to become available, packaging to become available, labels to become available, uh, a number of other things, the way, you know, well, we can't, let's not scrap this, we can sell it for 10 cents. Okay, what is, you're gonna kind of come back to you in material return and you're gonna pay a dollar for it. Mm. So um, that the, they aren't just out there even in those days, they weren't just haphazardly thinking, well, let's just counterfeit this today. No, they were organized and they sold and bought and sold from each other. And they, they had their own network. Insight was a sub-network within the auto parts business. And it included legitimate product, uh, sellers of a legitimate product who said, okay, well, I could sell this. My profit margin would go up if I could buy these cheaper and mix the genuine with the counterfeit. Right. And so you see, we, you see a lot of things like that that help you identify problems within your own business uh, model. Yeah, I think it's important to remember for people that, that counterfeiters are business people also. So they're looking for the profit, they're looking for the margins. So you've got to keep that in mind that they are business people. So but before we go, Rod, I, I do want to give you a, a special shout out. Uh, Rod, you were one of the original partners of the ACAP Center, along with Johnson & Johnson in 2009, and met with the director of the School of Criminal Justice uh, back, I think, in 2007, and, and talked to them about 
that industry needed an academic partner to help with learning about brand protection, to provide research, academic intelligence, to address the rising risks that were becoming known. Um, so I just want to again thank you for helping establish the ACAP Center, bringing this discipline uh, to the forefront that uh, now you know companies are recognizing that they need this discipline in-house to protect their brands. Um, so again, for the from the ACAP Center and you know from everybody across industry thank you for doing the hard work thank you very much for the kind comments i enjoyed all of it thank you rod kinghorn is an icon in the brand protection community and particularly special in our auto world here in michigan Operation Partsman became a blueprint for future investigations on how to infiltrate organizations that participate in counterfeiting to support their criminal operations. It resulted in an impressive $50 million in seizure value over a period of three days across 15 states after years of investigation, including a sting operation. Those involved, whether law enforcement attorneys general or in-house at General Motors, Ford and Chrysler took tens of thousands of harmful and unsafe auto parts off the market so that cars could operate safely and properly, allowing children to get to and from school and ensuring that the 4,000 pound hunks of metal we drive daily could actually stop when they needed to. The ACAP Industry Advisory Board consists of brand-owning companies interested in forming long-term, substantive, and mutually beneficial partnerships. The Board provides advice and supports the development and application of strategic goals and specific objectives as its fundamental role, which helps fulfill the ACAP Center's vision to be a trusted resource for industry. This episode is made possible through the support of Digimark. Now is the time to reclaim lost revenue, protect your consumer's safety, and your brand's reputation. Brand protection from Digimark provides a crucial and comprehensive layer to support anti-counterfeiting strategies and ensure product integrity. Digimark is the only data carrier technology that can be covertly applied to online images, digital documents, individual items, and primary, secondary, and tertiary packaging. Digimark has decades of experience working with governments to deter counterfeiting and detect tampering on banknotes, driver's licenses, and other government-issued documents. Find out more about how to protect your brand by visiting digimarc.com protection. Sponsorship for this podcast does not indicate an endorsement by ACAP or by any guest, nor does it imply any specific association. If you're interested in sponsoring episodes of Brand Protection Stories, please contact ACAP Assistant Director Carrie Camel at kkammel at msu.edu.
In the next episode, we talk to tobacco industry executive Hernan Albamonte. Tune in to hear the story about the largest U.S. seizure of tobacco products and his plea on why we should care about the illicit cigarette market and the criminals avoiding the paying of export taxes. Thanks for joining us today for this edition of Brand Protection Stories, produced by the Center for Anti-Counterfeiting and Product Protection, or ACAP, at Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan. Please visit us at a-capp.msu.edu. ACAP is a nonprofit organization founded in 2009. It is the first and only academic body focusing upon the complex global issues of anti-counterfeiting and product protection of all products across all industries and in all markets. In addition to this series, we offer certificate courses in brand protection, applied education and academic courses, executive education, student internships, live summits and virtual events, conduct groundbreaking research, and publish the quarterly digital industry journal, The Brand Protection Professional. Thank you to this episode's sponsor, Digimark. This is Leah Everberks with ACAP. Until our next session, keep protecting your brands and the world's consumers. Keep it real.